This is the GCSAA podcast, live from the 2023 GCSAA Conference and Trade Show in Orlando, Florida, presented in partnership with Enview. Now, here's your host, Scott Hollister. Well, back again at the 2023 GCSA Conference and Trade Show in Orlando, Florida, and uh, happy to have Josh Sens with us. Josh is with, uh, do you say you're with Golf.com or Golf Magazine? Well, it's Golf Magazine and Golf.com is a digital platform okay. of Golf Magazine. Right. So. Well, we're going to say Golf Magazine, and um, Josh is here uh, in Orlando with us this year uh, doing some reporting on the show. And uh, Josh is responsible for golf.com's really popular feature, Super Secrets. But we will uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But just first off, uh, your first time uh, at our event, what, what have you guys what have you and your team been working on since you've been in Orlando? Well, we got here yesterday and we just started doing a blitz of interviews with superintendents, what they call Vox Pops, you know, get quick answers to questions. What's the thing they like most about their job? The thing they like least, the thing that drives them craziest, the craziest thing they've ever seen on a course, just getting a lay of the land and then just walking the floor, trying to find the coolest, most interesting products. Even though we work in the industry, we know nothing about what it takes right. to get a golf course ready and all of the ancillary industries that are related to it. And so it's fun for us just to get a lay of the land. What has been the coolest thing? I don't want to steal any thunder from what well, you guys will be posting. The USGA but... ball was pretty cool. They got to measure turf Yeah, firm. the GS3, yeah. That was definitely pretty cool. And then uh, we walked around, we saw an autonomous mower. The robot mowers are coming. They are, yeah. They are coming. And uh, some brushes that are designed to kind of sweep away dead worms from golf courses, yeah. which I, I never knew it was a problem that needed to be solved, but there you go. There you go, yeah. So, Mother of invention right exactly. there. Exactly. But yeah, the the autonomous stuff, most of the major manufacturers have either, at the very least, prototypes um, that they're debuting. I'm looking at one kind of right over your shoulder there from uh, from John Deere. I went to a facility tour on Monday um, where Husqvarna had some, they looked like large Roombas, basically. Yeah. Um, but were, they were doing roughs and fairways. And so the labor situation and uh, also just the advances in technology, definitely. Uh, well, I hope they work better than a Roomba because all my Roomba <laughs> does is like scare my dog and bang up against the wall endlessly. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll scare the, we'll scare other animals on the, on yeah. the golf course with yeah. those. But who knows uh, what purposes? Let's talk about the super secrets uh, column. Uh, where did the idea come from? How did it get started? Uh, like most of my career in life is totally by accident. We, it will, the pandemic hit in San Francisco. Uh, I know a guy who manages a golf course and he called me up to say he was distressed because the city wasn't going to let him maintain his golf course during the closure, during the lockdowns. I said, well, no big deal. You just, you know, turn the lock the gate. And then when the pandemic's over, just open it up again. He said, no, you don't get it. You know, you can't just leave a golf course and expect to the next day you can show up and mow it. I said, really? I mean, honestly, I was that naive. Yeah. And I think a lot of us in the golf business who don't work on the agronomy side of things are. And so I started asking questions about what does it take to keep a golf course and what happens if you let a golf course lie dormant for that long. And he started telling me all the problems with bunkers and fairways and this and that we never would have considered. And we just wrote a column about it that was really popular. It got a lot of traffic. And then when we linked it to what does this teach you about yard care, then we really hit the jackpot. And we right. realized that people care a lot about their yards. And after about a few weeks, the column was so popular, we started joking that we should turn our golf.com into just a home yard care site. <laughs> you know? We were talking a little bit earlier, and, and obviously, I'm um, just because of my role with the association, I'm somewhat aware of of how that how that process has gone. But how do you go about finding your topics? It's every week, it appears. That's a lot uh, yeah, to do. How have you kind of navigated to find out what what to write about every week? Well, it's always desperate. A lot of times, it's leaning on you guys and asking you guys for ideas and calling superintendent friends 
we found that the topics seem to do best are topics that show an overlap either between golf course maintenance and yard care, or they relate directly to golfer behavior, surprising things about superintendents that drive superintendents crazy about golfers, pet peeves. The stuff we did on superintendent salaries and work hours really held a lot of interest too, because I'm sure you know a big issue in the industry is trying to attract a younger generation of workers. And there's this perception you, you can't make a good living and that you'll never have a free day. Yeah. And so- uh, I'm not really answering your question, but we're just sort of anything and everything agronomy related because uh, every week it's tough to come up with new ideas. And it, maybe it didn't surprise you because of just how you came into this idea and then you were one who didn't know a lot about it. So you're learning as you go along. But have you been surprised at the popularity of the feature? Yeah, I had no idea. Uh, and I and I realized, you know, it makes sense now that I think about it in retrospect that golfers, you know, they've been awakened to the things that they take for granted on the golf course. And I think that that is interesting to them. Oh, those, so that's how that green gets like that. That's what it means when they say it stimps at this, or that's why the rough looks like that at that time of year. Yeah. All the things that they experience in a day-to-day, once the explanations start coming, it does ring a bell. And then all the more, if you can kind of link it to why their yard looks so crappy or does, right. then, then it's all the better. That's right. It's, it's funny. I, I work in the business, but you know, I know just enough to be dangerous, but it does not, it does not show in my home yard. I have not been able to practically apply what I've learned about, about this business. What, uh, what's been your favorite one? Uh, you have some personal and, and, and did it match the readers? I would say probably my first, my favorite one was superintendent pet peeves. Cause we got Matt Guilfoyle and a couple others just going, Matt Guilfoyle hosts the Jingweeds podcast. Yeah, that's right. Care podcast. He's a personality and he's not shy in his opinions. And, when superintendents started talking about the things that drive them most crazy about golfers, that was entertaining to me because I felt called out for a lot of it. <laughs> but also, you know, people, people, and it resonated with people. You know, it got hundreds of thousands of clicks. If you know, yeah. this is an era where we measure by clicks. That's the coin of the realm, and people seem interested. So yeah, it was. I I just I hear a lot of those things in 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 confidence. You know, about the superintendents and the things that that make their either their job hard or just their life more difficult. So that probably wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me, but um, I can see why that would resonate uh, with folks. But we were talking a little earlier, just off, off mic about your kind of your origin story. Uh, how did you get into the, the writing business, number one, and how did that lead to a, a career in golf? Yeah, I didn't play golf as a kid, but I have a superintendent-related story about golf as a kid. If you'd like to hear that, I can tell you. Yes. Uh, you want me to tell you that story? Let's go. All right. My my origin story of, of golf, my introduction to golf, is related to a superintendent who might be at this show right now. I don't know. I grew up in Brookline, not far from the Brookline country, from the country club, where they host the U.S. Open, as right. you know. I never played golf. I never knew anybody who played golf because this was a very uncool era to be a golfer, and mm-hmm. the country club was a place unto itself. If you weren't part of that crowd, it place did not exist. Um, but there was a muni that butted up right up against it called Putterham Meadows. And one day in high school, I don't know, I must have been about 16 or 17, we were all bored. My friend said, let's go to the muni. And we went to the muni, we got hooked. Anyway, it turned out, this is a long story, but it has a payoff, I promise That's you. <laughs> there was a kid named Lenny Curtin on our, in our high school. Lenny Curtin was the son of a cop, kind of goodwill hunting, good old townie, great guy, only kid on our golf team who could break 80. And Lenny, every spring, would go out on the par five, the fifth hole of our muni, cut a hole in the fence and sneak through it and then go play on the country club. And the country club every year would come out and close it and he'd come back out and he'd open back up with his wire cutters. And we started calling that hole in the fence after we started playing at Curtin's Corner. And every now and then a few of us would, you know, dare to sneak through and, and play. And that's how I got my first glimpse of the country club was sneaking on onto what is the 11th hole. It played okay. as the 10th at the US Open anyway, and being just staggered by this, like, oh my God, golf can look like this. Anyway, the story about Lenny is 
son of a cop, Brookline cop, sneaking on relentlessly. They finally caught him. And instead of calling the cops or punishing him, they put him to work on the grounds crew. And he loved the work so much that it became his career. He ended up working the oh U.S. Open God. in 1988. And Lenny's now the head superintendent, George Wright, which is a great old Donald Ross Muni in Boston. So I wrote about that story in my memories of Lenny. And I hadn't seen him in 30 years on golf.com. And he got back in touch with me. And he, and it just brought back all these memories. And it, 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 awesome. it turned up all these connections in the golf world, too, that yeah. for him about being this sort of working man's hero snuck onto the country club, who's now part of the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. That's my long-winded uh, golf origin story. That's an awesome story. Did you, to, to go back a little bit, did you always want to write? Did you always want to communicate and, um, and do, and do I, that? That's the only thing that I was ever any good at, but I had no idea when I got, got out of college. I went and taught English overseas, and uh, I was working in Lisbon teaching mm -hmm. English, and I spoke Portuguese. And the wire service guy from a wire service called UPI back in the day, United yeah. International, needed a translator. And so I started working with that. I liked it. Then followed a crazy girl to California, went to grad school and ended up going to journalism school. And that's how I fell into it. I became a newspaper reporter with no interest in golf, right. but I stumbled on that later too, which I can tell you about if you care to hear. When did you transition from the newspaper writing to, it, it, you've uh, done some freelance sorts of yeah. work. How did that all translate into, into where you are now? Into golf? Well, okay. So this is, I'll, I'll try not to bore you with another long story, but I was working for the San Francisco Chronicle. I was writing a, uh, sort of a man bites dog column, a, a just column about oddballs in the news. And a friend told me that there was a high Tibetan Lama who was a golf addict, the Lama Kunga. And he lived up in El Cerrito in the hills outside of San Francisco. I said, there can't be a, a high Tibetan Lama who was a golf addict. That's just yeah. too straight out of Caddyshack. So I called the guy up, turned out he was a golf addict. We went out and played golf and it turned out to be a funny story. My car broke down on the way to the course. He turned out to be a cheat and et cetera and so forth. I wrote the story and Golf Digest wound up picking it up. And it appeared in Golf Digest and I started getting offers from them and other magazines to write. And I fell into a freelance gig with Golf Magazine. That was 2003 or so. And so I've been freelancing for them for 20 years or almost 20 years when they hired me full time four wow. years ago. In communications that you and I had prior to show and then with the GCSA's media relations guy, Mike Strauss, who's also uh, worked with you pretty closely on the super secrets. And so yeah. um, he shared some stories that I wanted to let you tell sure i'll do a terrible job since i didn't live them north korean you are are you the you you played in a golf tournament where you did you sneak into north korea yeah I did. i'm the i i think i finished i know i finished third it's a handicapped event uh in the 2012 north korean open the national championship in north korea I mean, when i was hired by golf magazine i'm not a pga tour like a tournament guy to yeah. me the most interesting parts of golf have nothing to do with professional golf right it's all about where it takes you and i'd gotten wind that there was an annual tournament held in north korea of course one course in the country built by the father of the revolution the, to celebrate his 75th birthday and a, an oddball British guy had somehow through a connection in China gotten access to running this tournament. So one year I applied to play in the tournament, but I applied as a journalist and my visa was rejected. So the next year I said, no, I'm going to pretend I'm a travel agent. So I wrote on my visa application, travel agent, nobody checked. I showed up in the country and there I was next day playing against, you know, a bunch of oddballs in this, the weirdest golf tournament in the world. Yeah. <laughs> was it like a traditional four round? It's uh... a, it was a two round affair. I didn't bring my own clubs. You know, I was, I was using like rental sticks with hickory shafts from the 1940s. <laughs> I mean, this course is as rudimentary as it gets. I mean, it's maintained by one or two women cutting fairways with garden shears. 
it is, you know, the fairways are are like rough and the greens are like fairways. And mm. there was 15 or 16 of us. There was one North Korean guy who showed up, but he decided he didn't want to play with the group. So he played off the back nine. There was a Mongolian black belt who worked for the Secret Service there. There was a guy who manufactured edible underwear in China. <laughs> I mean, it was a just a collection of refugees from the real world. And it was ended up being won by like a 27 handicap guy from England who turned out to be a tabloid reporter for The Sun. Oh, wow. Working undercover. Really? So, yeah, yeah. And, you know, a tour of North Korea is a bizarre tour. It's a bizarre and sad place. I sh- You know, I don't want to get too solemn about it, but it's a it's the saddest. I've been to a lot of countries to play golf. It's by far the saddest country I've ever visited and by far and away the saddest place. That is. Been, yeah, to play golf. Well, I, I think Kim Jong-un, I guess, famously Are you told about- the story about the four, three, five hole-in-ones in one round Yeah, of you're golf? thinking of Kim, uh, you're thinking of Kim Jong-il, who is oh, Jim Jong-il. father. Okay, the current, yeah, the, the other current, way around. The current leader had just taken over when I went. Kim Jong-il was the son of the father of the revolution, who supposedly, you know, shot a 34 with 11 holes in one or something along those lines, some fantastical round that's totally impossible, implausible. When I got to North Korea, I asked somebody about that, and what I was told was that when he went out and played, they were keeping a stableford system going. And so, you know, they were writing down the scorecard, zeros, ones, twos. Oh. And so when his scorecard was done, he was, you know, listed for like 11 bogeys or whatever. And people took that to be 11 okay. holes in one. And the press knew that was BS because even if you're a beginner, it was the first yeah. time playing golf, you don't make 11 bogeys, yeah. right? But it was too good a story to not run. Yeah. With. And yeah. like a lot of stories out of North Korea, nobody bothered to fact check them. And so that's the story that lives on in myth. Yeah, that's uh, quite a round. He had a, quite a career in a professional Yeah, golf no, it will never be matched. Stuff. You said you worked in Lisbon, North Korea. Have you done a lot of international, not just travel, but is there anything particular about the international side of things that interests you, that gets you going in this place? Because I, uh, Mike was sharing his story of playing the longest golf, the golf course in the country, hundreds of miles long. And Yeah, I uh, mean, to me, like I said, I the professional game, it can – it can be interesting four or five times a year when they play the majors. Right. But what, what, what I love about golf is the places it takes you and the people you meet. And I've always gravitated toward oddball stories. And there was a quirky guy in the middle of the outback in the most isolated part of the world who wanted to draw more tourists to the outback. And so he built, started building what is now the longest golf course in the world, the Nullarbor links, which runs across the entire length of the outback in Australia. It's something like 800 miles. So back in the day when you could sell editors on stories like that, they sent me to Australia and we got into a car and drove two weeks and you play one hole after another, stopping in the little towns along the way. And uh, it's where Skylab fell. Remember Skylab? Yeah, the that's right. Yeah, I the most isolated place in the world. Skylab fell, landed there, didn't kill anybody because there was nobody There's, around, yeah, to, <laughs> nobody no around to kill. But now, so they built this course to kind of be a tourist draw. And so I, I had to go play it. That's right. Yeah. Would you shoot? <laughs> many, many shots. Well, a lot of the, lot, lot, I can't even remember. A lot of the holes would go through the outback itself. You know, if you missed, it, it was either an AstroTurf tee box plunked down in the middle of the hard pan on the, uh, yeah. so I probably shot a million and I didn't chase many balls because a lot of brown snakes out there. And yeah, as our, as our guide said, like one drop kills a herd of cattle. So I thought, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to mess with that venom. Yeah. The wildlife we see on golf courses in the States differs a little bit than what you might find. Yeah, no, it's a different animal. Yeah, we we played once in um, in Australia, in Australia, South Africa, at a course called Hans Marenski for a story. And uh, that's cut through a game park where they clear, you know, you get up in the morning and we go to the first tee, they send an armed guard with you to sweep the course, make sure there's no wild animals. I have pictures of myself playing golf with, you know, giraffes in the backdrop, like yeah. literally walking by me. 
leopard kill in the trees. There are three, there's a South African family that runs with the Pappas family and three of the brothers ended up playing golf in the PGA Tour. One of them was Dean Pappas, who was John Daly's roommate at Arkansas. Okay, yeah. So I played with him when I went back down there, when I went to visit that course and he was telling me that Daly had shown up there at an event that they held just to kind of draw publicity and Daly had gone missing one night after, you know, partying after a round and they were freaked out the next morning. They thought he'd been eaten by a lion, you know, and they scoured the property and find, they ultimately found him he said on some road, like asleep at the wheel of, yeah. of a Jeep, you know, in the middle of Palaborwa National Game Park. Oh my They Lord. were amazed that he hadn't been eaten by a lion. Yeah. Well, a, f- a fun related story to GCSA. One of our uh, colleagues at GCSA, uh, Jim Cummins in our sales department, also played on that Arkansas team. Oh, did he really? I don't believe he went to the game park at any point. But He uh, missed out. That course yeah. is spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember uh, walking by a water hazard there and the guy, one of the other guys was, was walking with me. He was a game warden. He, he grabbed me by the shoulder pulled me away of the water he said hey son i can't do a south african accent but he just said there's three crocs in there i'll kill you and four will kill you properly yeah <laughs> so, okay that's a big alligator crocodile. Yeah, that's a, and it's a good uh tip to stay away from those yeah. those folks i already told you i was going to ask you about this but i'm going to wait uh, wait a little bit more what are your favorite golf course experiences playing the game do you have particular mm-hmm. favorite courses uh-huh. memories from the, the game obviously you've told some unbelievable stories already but um oh, some famous favorite memories gosh i mean uh playing in um i would say in tasmania at barnbugle dunes right after it opened and walking along in the early morning you know and wallabies bounding around the sun rising and feeling like i was playing a cypress point in a bizarro yeah. universe trying to think what else uh anytime at bandon is special Years ago, maybe I shouldn't say this. I don't know. Years ago, <laughs> I years ago befriended accidentally. I took a guy out playing golf for free because I had a free round and he turned out to be an employee at Cypress Point. And so oh. I've had many a morning round with him out there. And wow. Yeah. So, I mean, like those are favorite courses, but my favorite, my favorite experiences are just showing up randomly and meeting oddballs on the golf course. So I'm, yeah. I'm not a member anywhere. I like going out to the local muni and just as a single and see who you meet. It's a crapshoot. It yeah. can be a bad day. You can get bad company, but more often than not, you get great yeah. company. Yeah. Yeah. And as a, and as a storyteller and someone who's just curious about people and things like that, I mean, those, those have to just open your mind, your eye. And I mean, you just stumble into things that you probably, that curiosity probably leads you to, yeah. clearly has led you to some interesting places. The places that people play golf and the people who play it is always surprising. And a story of that same trip to South Africa, we went to Soweto, you know, one of the poorest shanty towns and, and outside of Johannesburg. And, there had been a golf course built there, cut through the shanty towns, you know, flag sticks made out of broomsticks with T-shirts as the flags. And we're playing there. And, you know, they, these they had junior golf programs that were funded by Ernie Els and some other generous South African Correct, golfers. Yeah. But we're playing. And out of the shanty towns walks a kid who looks like, you know, he's in rags. And he started playing golf with us. And he went out and shot one under, you know, yeah. stories like that. Or a story in Brazil about a group of caddies who were working at a country club. And they got obsessed with golf. And they built their own golf course, spent seven years building their own golf course in the outskirts of Rio out of their own hands, carving a nine-hole course that became Brazil's first municipal golf course. Wow. So stories like that, to me, are where golf really lives. Yes, the high-end courses are great and it's beautiful and it's fun to watch the pros play them. But give me the oddballs in the quirky corners of the world and that's a way more compelling yeah. story any day. Yeah, Gil Hanson didn't necessarily need to go to Rio apparently to build a golf course. So you just use that. Uh, with yeah, the Gil, yeah, and that course, with that little nine-hole course, those caddies built when the Olympics and the World Cup came to Brazil, the Brazilian government decided they wanted they needed more freeways built. And what happens in Brazil when you want to build a freeway, you don't put it through the wealthy people's neighborhoods. So they right. put part of that freeway through that oh, Munich man. course those caddies have built. So they lost two holes that they only now have recovered. But the Olympic course that Gil Hans built there is 
spectacular. Yeah, I was lucky enough in, uh, I guess, 2019 at our show, we started doing these live podcasts from there. And, and Gil was nice enough to come on and talk about what unbelievable stories. This audience was super interested because of just the challenges they faced with equipment and, and products and things they needed and, and trained labor uh, that had done that kind of work before. And so uh, super cool, interesting yeah. Interesting one story. interesting uh, side note to that story, I think, is there was a lot of concern, a lot of talk when golf returned to the Olympics in Brazil that uh, golf had no place in the Olympics and especially had no place in Brazil where the a country with very little golf history. Right. And there was talk of corruption and how this was going to be a boondoggle. You know, they built all these lavish facilities for the Olympics down there. The golf course is one of the few that remains. All the others have gone un under, but yeah. the golf course was funded with private money and the government wasn't involved and there was no opportunity for the kind of usual graft and that golf course today is in good shape and thriving, you know, and so it's a success story. Yeah, yeah. And from the growth of game perspective, because, I mean, that was a lot of what was behind the thought behind, hey, let's get this back in the Olympics. We can take it to Japan. We can take it to Brazil. We can grow the game. And that's got to be hardening for, for Gil, too, to, you know, you put that blood, sweat and tears in the back of your mind going, man. Hope this thing's still here in 10 years yeah, once, and once, we, once the circus pulls out of town. So, right. All right. It's time to rock. You wrote a book about with Sammy Hagar. I did. As a official middle-aged guy with a classic rock background, I'm super interested in that. How did that all come about? So it's a bit of an odd story. I, on the side while I was freelancing, wrote a food column. And Sammy Hagar loves food maybe more than music. He loves talking about it. He's, you know, he calls himself the Baja of Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. <laughs> He's got that whole lifestyle around him. And uh, so he was looking for writers. He had sold a book idea. He was going to sell a lifestyle cookbook, Sammy Hagar's Life and Food and Drink and Partying. <laughs> he had five of us lined up to interview him to interview for the gig. And uh, it was early morning. I drive out to meet him on the top of, he lived on a house on the shoulder of Mount Tam overlooking the bay, uh, just okay. in Marin County. And I showed up and he was, there was Sammy Hagar, comes out of his house looking very Sammy Hagar and flip flops and board shorts. And he's mm -hmm. got a cup of coffee. And I said to him, is that dark roast or light roast? And he looked at me and he said, dude, you gotta be kidding me. You shitting me, right? And I said, oh, no. and, he, and he went back and he pulled out his latest CD and it was Sammy Hagar lightly roasted. <laughs> and he said to me, that's my sign. You're my guy. Yeah. And I don't know if you're a Sammy Hagar fan, you may know that he's super into numerology and astrology. Uh -huh. And a lot of his business life has been making decisions by gut, you know, hiring doormen he meets to run his cantinas in Cabo. And that's how he hired me. And so I, wow. I drove home 20 minutes back to my house. And I had I got home. There's like six answering machine messages from Sammy Hagar. Hey, dude, you're my guy. You're going to be my guy. You knew that about the coffee. That's a sign from the stars. You're my guy. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's how it came about. And he was great. You know, we spent the past the next year just meeting twice a week and him reliving his memories of being a young kid growing up poor in Southern California, getting having an Italian grandfather who taught him how to cook and hunt and his entry into rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. That has, I mean, being able to, not be pigeonholed on what you've written in your career. I mean, is that, is, is that gratifying to you? Is that it kept you kind of motivated that you're finding these interesting uh, uh, stories to tell in different parts of the world, not just golf and not just rock and roll or not just, you know, for whatever. sure. I mean, that's the best part of the job. Probably I've, we've been interviewing a lot of superintendents this week and they all say that what I love about my job is every day. It's a little bit different. And that's been the plus side of my job. And I think if I were going to pinpoint a downside is like being a jack of all trades and a master of none. I'm now 56 and going, when do I get to retire? Yeah. I guess never. <laughs> My only exit plan is death right now, you know, which is problematic. <laughs> so I probably should have gotten to another career if I wanted financial security, but it's been fun. 
my goal in life was to never have to wear a tie and never have to commute nine to five. So I achieved that at least. Yeah, yeah. that's what you, you've, accomplished, you've accomplished a lot then. Yeah, well, there you go. Josh, on behalf of GCSA, thanks for being here to, to cover it and, and kind of shedding an eye on, on what, what our members do uh, to a, a more general golf golf audience. It, it means a lot. And uh, hope we'll see you in Phoenix next year. Hopefully it'll might correspond with the waste management. I'm sure you'll find some interesting stories. I hear they have a tournament down there. Yeah. Yeah. They have a little, little golf event going on. A little gathering going on this week. You can follow on Twitter, Josh sends at Josh sends. Yeah. I post once every like six years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I have 12 followers. So So jump on board. You might go, uh, well, you know, you Google your name. It's the first thing that comes up. So it's scary (laughs) anymore. The Twitter I stuff. suppose I should get with the social media thing. Huh? I hear the kids are using it these days. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But at the very least, go to golf.com, read the Super Secrets column every week. Josh Sens, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the GCSAA podcast, recorded live at the 2023 GCSAA Conference and Trade Show in Orlando, Florida, presented in partnership with Enview.